Hey everybody, this is Nick Fletcher, and this is the Posna 2023 Hall of Fame podcast. I want to thank my partners in crime, Carter Clement and Salil Upasani, for their help with this. This was really a tremendous opportunity to speak to several giants in our field. For those of you who are not as familiar with the Hall of Fame, the Posna Hall of Fame provides an enduring history to honor Posna members who have displayed dedication to Posna in teaching and mentoring, studying musculoskeletal conditions in children and caring for children with musculoskeletal conditions. There are a number of categories that people can seek uh, recognition in, including leadership, diversity, teacher, humanitarian, hero, triumph over adversity, pioneer, contributions to literature, home person, which is somebody who does the real work while others go to the meetings, a foxhole buddy who is a reliable person when the stakes are high, an exceptional clinician, or those who have served POSNA. Members have to be uh, within POSNA for more than 15 years and have to be at least 60 years of age. And our inaugural class was in 2019. So we had the opportunity this time to speak to seven luminaries in the field, actually, it ended up being five as two were unable to be there. But our inductees this year were Peter Armstrong, Morris Duhame, Freeman Miller, Vince Mosca, Andy Sullivan. And I think that the conversation was really, for me, riveting. It was great to hear stories as to how they started and really big things in their life. So thank you to everyone who came to the annual meeting. I think it turned out to be a great success. Nashville did not disappoint. And I had a really tremendous time seeing friends and reconnecting with people. So uh, enjoy the summer and thanks again for listening to this. And of course, thanks to Carter for all of the work putting this together. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us for the POSNA Hall of Fame podcast. We are here with five of the inductees for this year and uh, so the Posna Hall of Fame is um, established basically to have an enduring memory of uh, members of our organization who have contributed significantly to Posna, and these members have been nominated for their leadership in the organization, for significant contributions to the literature, as well as their service to our membership. So we have with us today Peter Armstrong, uh, who was nominated for his leadership. We have Freeman Miller, who's a pioneer in our field. We have Vincent Mosca, who's all a pioneer as well as for his significant contributions to our literature. Stephen Treadwell for his leadership, as well as Baxter Willis, who was our 2022 Distinguished Achievement Award winner. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen, and I'll uh, pass the mic on to Nick Fletcher and Carter Clements from our fantastic Posner podcast team to start off the interviews. Great. Well, thank you again for, for agreeing to do this. This is a huge honor for Carter and I and Salil as well uh, to sort of be in this kind of presence. I did the math beforehand, and rough estimate, we've got 250 years of experience with the entire seven we're missing two right now but, uh, I think put a different way the three of us can't combine to equal one of you at least in years of experience so I think that's pretty neat um, what I was hopeful to do was to just give uh, there, you all have bios that are accessible online 
but to give a quick little background, and then um, I have a couple of questions. Carter's got some questions, and I have a little bit of an a, um, uh, open dialogue. But I did want to point out at the beginning, and I said this to Peter earlier, that we have a majority of Canadians in this class. So if something happened in the early 70s that put out a high-powered uh, Canadian pediatric orthopedic surgeon to really sort of change the world, uh, which is really neat to see. So pretty cool. Um, and so, but I'm going to start with one who is not uh, Canadian. So, uh, Dr. Miller, you have a really unique background. So, grew up in an Amish family, one of seven children, I understand, in, in Ohio, um, and started out in PA school uh, in Iowa before you sort of decided on becoming a physician. But did your fellowship in Canada? And there was some background that I found really interesting. Most interesting of which was that. You started a program that, to my knowledge, didn't exist really elsewhere in the world when you came to DuPont, um, where, you, where you practiced for your entire career, where you partnered with a neurologist, if I understand, with Dr. Is it, was he a neurologist? A pediatrician. Pediatrician? P yes. We, we were partnered with a pediatrician, and our goal was to provide comprehensive care for children with cerebral palsy. And, and your love, you had a huge interest, obviously, going in. That was what yes. you wanted to do. Can you talk a little bit about where that came from and then just the process of doing something like that that had really never been done before? You know, it's a little complex, but I initially, when I was in medical school originally, sort of had an inclination to go into neurology. But then I finally figured out that neurologists don't ever do anything. They sit and talk and think a lot, which was appealing, but they don't do anything. So uh, I was attracted to orthopedics because you did a lot, and uh, at least it seemed to me in pediatrics you also did some thinking, so that sort of combined together. Plus I also was very interested in gait and gait analysis early on, so I was involved in gait studies and setting up the gait laboratory at uh, DuPont. So that's sort of the trajectory of how I got to where I was. So how, but how did you partner? And it, that was sort of a unique opportunity that so, to bring somebody else in and help. Yeah, so, so DuPont at the time is a unique, was an institution uh, like the Shriners, but they had the rule that you could not treat uncurables. So they had this rule from the, the setup of the foundation. So in the 80s, in the mid-80s, they decided that, oh, cancer now was curable and cerebral palsy, severe cerebral palsy was curable. So then they said, we want to make a program at the same time that we're going to bring in and set up a, a program for tumors, cancer, and they wanted to get a CP program going. So we were recruited independently. We did not know each other before we arrived. Wow. Wow. Uh, certainly created something that has, you know, really grown and, and has become a model for the rest yeah. of the country and world, which is great. Thank you. Yes, yeah. And so I think we have sort of a dual purpose here. We want to hear about your life achievements, all that stuff, and we also want to hear about how Posner was a part of your life. Yeah. So can you uh, tell us a little bit about at sort of your favorite parts of your career, how was Posna a part of your work? So my focus has always been primarily on patient care, but also on research and in um, education has been another big part. So very involved, I've done a lot of travel and lecturing in lots of different places. And a lot of those connections were made through POSNA Initially, the connections with EPOS, which I've also had a lot of connections with, also came through POSNA. And I think just the ability for educational uh, 
programs, uh, you know, initially in the early uh, part of the 90s, there was lots of discussion in POSNA about the utility or non-utility of gait analysis and CP treatment. So, you know, with Jim Gage, at one point we had several uh, uh, large um, Thursday afternoon specialty sessions, which were at the time, initially the POSNA board thought nobody would come, but huge numbers of people came, showed an interest, so that was part of the area, I think, of POSNA that sort of started raising the interest more of cerebral palsy in the 90s. So Vince, uh, for the other American-born of the group today, um, I, I was going to say, you did again go to, there's like this kind of really interesting uh, comments mafia here. That's exactly right. Um, but, and you, we talked obviously in the podcast, which was wonderful. Um, you know, it was interesting reading a little bit and, and hearing a little bit more about your story about how you got into foot surgery, which was interesting. You were taught by just a bunch of giants in the field who all did something a little bit differently, but that in a way got you interested in pursuing a career that focused predominantly on the foot and ankle. Is that correct? It is. And interestingly, what I mentioned was that the person who allowed me to see the third way of Pete is one of the other Hall yeah, of Fame members. I saw that. Um, Peter. Peter had just come back from a two-year research fellowship at CHOP, and he was new on the faculty, so he didn't have a fellow assigned to him, and I was assigned to Colin mostly. Colin did a lot of pediatric orthopedics, including foot surgery. Norris Carroll was the primary pediatric foot surgeon, and he had his eponymous foot surgery operation because at the time, Ponsetti was still hidden in the closet and club foot was a surgical disease. That's why I decided to go into pediatric orthopedics is because I liked operating on club feet, which I learned from Jay Leonard Goldberg at Duke, that a club foot was congenital equinal cable varus that needs surgery. The whole sentence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if it didn't need surgery, it wasn't a club foot. And he had his four-hour operation cut everything apart, if it doesn't fall on the floor, put it back together, and keep going. And then I went to Toronto and worked with Colin and worked with Norris when Colin was out of town. And I learned Norris's approach. Completely different understanding of the pathoanatomy, but it's the same 85% good to excellent outcomes at, at two years. And I was reading about the McKay procedure, and my good friend <laughs> uh, just come back from CHOP. And so Peter, I've been with him, and he'd say, what do you want to do this club foot? And I said, hey, let's try this McKay procedure. And so we did a number of McKay procedures together, under the radar. Uh, and McKay procedures were also 85% of the excellent results at two years with a complete third understanding of the pathoanatomy and what you did technically. So, as I've said before, I, I was convinced that if I was going to go into academics, the one thing I would never do is write an operation on how I operate on club feet. <laughs> and that's true to this day. It's like treating Perthes. It's, you know, there's not, if there's 125 ways, then you know, there can't be one good way to treat it surgically. Um, you, you know, a thing, something, and I, I think that sort of speaks to it that was so important to you was the idea of mentoring. Peter mentored you and how to do it. And you spoke about that a little bit in sort of your notes about how one of the things that you would recommend to the next generation is really paying it forward. You know, Carter had asked a second ago about POSNA. Can you talk a little bit about how you see, how you've paid it forward, how you've thought about that, and how POSNA sort of played along with that? The afternoon sessions that Freeman just talked about were really important to me to help 
me get my messages out. But what was much more important actually was the Pazna associate IPAS, or IPOS, however people pronounce it. And I've been on the faculty there, I think, for almost every year that it's been a course. And each of the directors would give me topics that were not just talk about club foot and then talk about skew foot, talk about flat foot, but it was always these sort of one-off, uh, a different direction, a different aspect of the general topic that made me go deeper into just anything anybody can read any place, but to get deeper into and make slides for and get images of these one-off things. Well, after a few years, I realized that my talks were a book. I thought I wanted to write a book, but I realized that having to collect all this, the regular data that everybody else had, or the regular information, and then these sidebars in depth, that I had a collection of stuff that could be a book. And then I just had to convince a publisher to make a book that was my brain on paper, using images that were not just individual pictures, but collages, which you do when you give your talks at IPOS and other meetings. And so the, the big influence is that all those asked to do these odd things make these talks that speak for themselves in more words than words to help them write the book. And, and the book has been, I think, a great way to mentor people in the child's foot. Yeah, that's a great story. So, well, actually, uh, one other thing, because I know we, we worked out together at the same time yesterday morning, and you are a exercise fanatic. Can you talk a little bit how you fit this into practice? It's something that I struggle with, I think a lot of us struggle with, but I just thought about it yesterday. You mentioned it in your uh, in your bio that you're, you love going to meetings and going for bike rides and whatnot, and sort of work-life balance, I think, is a challenge for everybody. Can you talk a little bit about how that's been important to you and how you built it into your practice, sort of staying fit and healthy? It's just something I have to do. Biologically, I have to work out. I was an athlete in high school and college, and, and I just have continued it through. That's about retirement. I used to work out five days a week, now I work out seven days a week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but exercise is something that I used to do in, in the morning, especially on OR days. And then I could do the operation in my head, because I, I would be on like a stationary bike, and or running, but I could do the operation a few times before I got to the OR. By the time I got to the OR, I had already done it a few times while I was exercising. And I, I just felt that was a great way to prep for the case. Yeah, so a deliberate practice. Yeah, so it, it means getting up earlier than we usually get up early, but that was always the best time for me because it had the, the dual things that made me feel good, but also gave me the opportunity to do the operation. And so, so I liked it. I usually did it early. Sometimes I, I did it really late, so it had to be either really early or really late, but, but I fit it in. And then I think it becomes hormonal. Once, once you start doing it, you do it. So what are the great effects of the exercise? One is it delays or prevents dementia. Two, it delays or prevents heart disease. Three, it delays or prevents many types of cancer. And uh, four, it makes you look good. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily in that order. Yeah, was that <laughs> number one? Oh, that's, that's great. Um, well, Baxter, so um, I, I think you had a really interesting background. You came from a very academic family, from what I gather. Father was dean at the business school at the University of Western Ontario. And you sort of quickly progressed, again, training in Canada, going to sick kids again, this sort of common theme. Um, and then uh, going back to Western Ontario where you became a chair, but then sort of took a diversion, actually went down where Carter was for about 10 years. So I guess practiced 10 years in Canada, went back, went down to, down to New Orleans for 10 years and then came back, which is, you know, 
a little bit of a different path than a lot of people. Can you talk a little bit about the process of uh, start restarting both your own clinical practice, which I think is hard enough, but then also rebuilding a department multiple times, uh, you know, now essentially three times during your career? When I was in London, in pediatric orthopedics, we were two people, and it wasn't going to get very much bigger. And I always had this desire to lead a bigger program, and uh, I was at a conference with Dean McEwen, who was at the time the uh, chair in, in New Orleans, and Dean and I had known each other for several years, and he persuaded me to go for an interview. I had no intention of going to New Orleans. I said, what's a kid from London, Ontario? My wife thought I'd lost my mind. But once I got there, it's a fabulous hospital, and its philosophy was more on, along the Canadian sort of philosophy of healthcare. They don't refuse anybody. If you don't have insurance, they look after, look after you. So I, I could see myself, and it was a bigger program, and I was at a stage where I, I wanted to try out leadership and see what would happen. So I had a fabulous 11 years in New Orleans, I think a lot, like a lot of us here, if, if you enjoy people, you're going to be successful in a clinical practice. You, you know, I, I relate to people. I like seeing patients. I like seeing families, talking to them. So that wasn't a big, big issue. But then another opportunity came along after 11 years in New Orleans to return to Canada uh, and be the head of surgery at a children's hospital uh, in our nation's capital. And Again, at first I went for the interview and it didn't look like it was going to work, but after some massaging and, and so on, I ended up in Ottawa and have had a fabulous 18 years there. And uh, again, if you enjoy people, clinical practice is sort of, I think, automatic. And, uh, it's, it's not hard to do it. But I think especially in pediatric orthopedics, being a leader of a group is a lot easier. I can tell you as a chief of surgery, it's a lot more difficult to try to herd neurosurgeons and cardiac surgeons <laughs> and so on. But the orthopedic surgeons were easy. That was the other groups that were often more challenging. Well, so it, it's been fun to, to meet you and get to know you a little bit. Uh, I hear your name all the time. You left an enormous legacy in New Orleans. Probably every week someone says, oh, well, actually, this is how Baxter Willis did it. And uh, I say, oh, okay, oh. Well, well, we'll do it that way. <laughs> um, I still ask for things in the OR, and they say, go get Dr. Willis's set and uh, get the hip retractors and so forth. But what I want to ask you is sort of to, again, bring things back to pause in here. Sort of as you went through these different stages of your career, you were sort of continuously involved with POSNA, and uh, we were all very proud to see you get that uh, achievement award last year. And I just want to hear what you felt like POSNA contributed to your career along the way. Enormous, and, and when a lot of us joined the organization, I think when I joined in about 1980, there were like 80 members. That's how small this fraternity was. We all knew everybody. You had an idea, you could bounce it off somebody. They wouldn't steal your idea. We collaborated. It was a very small fraternity, and in Canada, even smaller. There were maybe 20 or 25 of us countrywide. Problem, you'd pick up the phone and somebody would if not answer you, they'd get back to you the same day. So when all of us joined POSNA, it was such a small group, A, you almost had to contribute if you were going to come to this meeting. You had to have a paper on or whatever. But again, I, I enjoyed just contributing to the group by being on a committee and trying to do uh, something that would help move uh, our specialty forward. And so committee after committee, and, and like Freeman, I was always interested in education. And 
I got to be the chair of the education committee and things were changing dramatically, uh, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s in terms of our contributions at the American Academy and, and how we were doing courses ourselves. And, and that fortunately morphed into a position on the board and, and something that uh, is the honor of my lifetime. Can you talk a little bit about that year? Uh, we um, So Andy Sullivan is, isn't here today, but we had two foreign positive presidents on this uh, in this esteemed group. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the year as president, um, what it meant to you, what some of the challenges were and takeaways? Well, the first challenge, uh, and I remember this well, the person in Terry Steck's role uh, was injured in an auto accident and then subsequently was found to have probably ALS. Oh, wow. And so she was unable to go back to work. So it was at that point in time, just her and Terry in the office, that's how small we were. So Terry and I were on the phone usually every day about some issue coming along. So the first thing I recognized, we needed to get a proper uh, executive director. And so uh, Steve Richards and I one Saturday came down to the office and interviewed a whole host of uh, women. And uh, the best decision we ever made was to make Terry She's been in that role for 25 years, and everybody knows that, what a dynamo she is. It's time-consuming, but enjoyably time-consuming. We'd have, once a week, the presidential line would have a call, and we'd discuss all sorts of issues. We would try to solve them in that group or get the committee chair or council chair. One of the things that I was sort of responsible for was, in those days, there were just a whole bunch of committees, and I, I thought, this is crazy. The, trying to coordinate all this, let's develop the council concept. So we did that during my year, and I think it's been very fruitful. Wow. But a busy, but very thoroughly enjoyable year. And it must be sort of cool, even now, 25 years later, to see those fruits of that year still bearing fruit. I mean, oh, still, still, no uh, question. This you know, is the, the, the council organization are... I love and love coming to this meeting. Yeah, for sure. Um, Peter, uh, we've obviously known each other for a long time, which I think is, uh, is really fun. Um, and it's, I mean, all, for everybody in the room, uh, probably other than Salil Carter and I, just seeing the, the, the backgrounds is remarkable. But, um, you know, you're, we have a couple of former militaries. You were in the Canadian Armed Forces, also grew up in, uh, in Canada, and also was at Sick Kids. Um, but your path was, was pretty unique for a couple of reasons. One, you have been this sort of lifelong learner. I mean, you were at the Shriners forever, and then when that stopped, you went and went into an area that really nobody else had ventured into um, after your time at Kellogg. And you know, I know you've got a, a degree from Harvard, from the Harvard Business School, but went to work for orthopediatrics. And I wanted to focus on that a little bit because I remember very clearly around the time that I was coming out of uh, training was the time that you were starting that, that venture. And it was really neat, and I, I recognized it at that time, how great it was that we had sort of one of our own in that role. Can you talk a little bit about the process of going from clinical care to the business world and what you saw in it as an opportunity and what made it fun for you? Well, it's interesting. I describe my life as having a series of never in my wildest imagination <laughs> experiences. And, and that obviously was one of many that occurred to me. So I had made the transition from clinical work to non-clinical work when I took the job at Shrine Headquarters because I talked to Newt McCullough. I was thinking, well, I'll, I'll be able to do some work at the Tampa Shrine, and he said, I tried. And I just wasn't able to do that because, you know, you could say, well, I, I won't operate, I'll do clinics. 
but you could say, I'll do a clinic on Thursday, and then Tuesday you find you have to be at the Portland Hospital on Thursday. Well, you know that wreaks havoc in the hospital. So then, uh, it was October 2007, four gentlemen showed up at my office at headquarters at Shriners, and uh, Tina, my executive administrative assistant, said, there are four men here from orthopediatrics that would like to speak with you. And I can remember precisely what I said to her. Ortho, who? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the, the, the four came in, and two of them, Dave Bailey, who's the current president, and Greg Odell, who's the vice, now the vice president of Spine, they were both executive vice presidents at the time. And uh, so they talked about this concept of a company whose total focus would be on children with orthopedic conditions. Well, of course, I was intrigued by that. But remember, that was back in the time where industry was dirty. And, and I was asked, uh, they said, we'd be really honored if you would take a job on the Surgeon Advisory Board. And I said, let me think about that. And as, as I got to know, particularly Dave and Greg, and I saw, I saw a company with integrity. That meant a lot to me. I saw a company who, whose passion was for helping kids, whose passion was the same as mine. I mean, it really was. And the other thing was their commitment to education. And I think, I mean, you can't argue that at all uh, now several years later. So I said yes, that I would, uh, you know, that I would make that transition and, and I would join the Surgeon Advisory Board. And, I guess it wasn't surprising in a way that, that immediately they made me chairman of the Surgeon <laughs> Advisory Board. And I did that, and when I, uh, when I retired from the Shrine at the end of June in 2012, Mark Throdahl, well, we talked about this beforehand, but anyway, Mark Throdahl said, would you like to come and be our chief medical officer? And it was quite honestly an easy question to answer because I really believed in what they were doing, and I believed that it was a critical opportunity to have one of us deeply embedded in the senior leadership of the company. So as chief medical officer, I was, I was a senior officer in the company and part of all the, you know, the leadership meetings and so on that took place. And, and I, I will tell you that I had never regretted that decision. It was really, I worked with wonderful people and I, you know, I, and, and what I got to do was interface with my colleagues all over the world, really. And with the idea that we, we have to help this company in perfecting the tools that they have and expanding the tools that they have to help children but also to kind of guide and direct them as far as their educational efforts, what to support and what not to support, and so on. And, and you know, for example, in the pandemic, as far as POSNA is concerned, when so many, and I'm not trying to throw them under the bus, so many bailed, orthopediatrics that, that was suffering financially because of the pandemic said, we're, we're going to continue as a double diamond sponsor because we believe 
you know, and what POSNA is doing and their educational efforts. So we're we're not dropping our contribution to that. So it, it was it was just one of those incredible experiences too. I mean I got very involved in the quality aspect. So when when there were problems that were reported, they would come in. I would usually then reach out, make contact with the uh, with the surgeons because I wanted to know from a surgical perspective what happened. What's your opinion as to what happened? And if you think it was had something to do with the, the implant or the or the instrumentation, what do you think needs needs to be fixed? And then I would take that back to the you know the quality people and the, and the company, and they would work on that. I, I was also very impressed with the integrity of that part. I mean, they, they were dead serious. I mean, I, I will tell you there was there was one time, and I was at EPOS in Athens calling surgeons because the infant blade plate, one of the surgeons found that you could bend it. Now, the other surgeon I talked to said, that doesn't mean anything to me. It works perfectly well for me. But the fact that Someone had complained about it, and it, and it was bending. And it ended up when they did the research; it was one of the drill of the screw holes was not properly placed, which resulted in a 40% weakness in in that area. But my colleagues in the company, who had worked for other companies, said, "You know, well, they wouldn't do anything about it, but." Orthopediatrics pulled it off the market, made the correction to the device, and put it back. And I said, you don't see many companies that would. Because that obviously created another financial hit for them, because that product wasn't on the market being sold. And so as I say, I think it was a, a wonderful opportunity for me. And I think I did try very hard to represent all of us in, in that company, moving it forward the way, the way that we would feel would benefit children. It's a great, great answer. Before I, I know Carter has a question, but I, I wanted to ask actually the rest of the group something about that. So again, I came out and, and met you early on and thought, this is cool. There's this guy who seems very uh, involved in POSNA and very involved in what I'm doing career-wise who also happens to be partnering with a company. But obviously, these are your peers who came up along with you, what, did you see that? Uh, I mean, maybe it wasn't something that was, was, was talked about a lot, but industry obviously plays sort of different roles within our lives and within our organization. And was there a thought that, you know, Peter was going over to the dark side or, that you, or did you see it more as a, as a benefit to everybody that you would have sort of a man in, in that, in that uh, end? Yeah, Vince? Yeah, I've known Peter for four decades and I've always known him to be the most moral ethical person I could imagine. And so, when I heard he was going there, I, I've always been skeptical of, of industry. Uh, I don't use much industry. My number one implant is a standard pin, and it always has been. Uh, I, I mean, that's my implant. But when I, when, when I heard, when I saw the company come out, and then I saw Peter go to it, that's what gave me the confidence in that. Not anything that they were doing, but that, that Peter would, would join it. <laughs> it was an easy thing because Peter doesn't have a dark side. So when any conversation would turn in that direction, he's a lot, obviously doesn't bear here. 
And so it was a nice head start. And again, that people have known each other for ever since eating salmon on my dad. That's right. <laughs> the best barbecued salmon on my dad. And the, the other thing that Peter did very early on was to recruit members of this organization to be part of the surgical advisory board. So we could bring ideas, we'd meet usually around this meeting or another meeting, yep. and bring ideas about implants or what we needed, and critique ideas that the company had. So it was very inclusive. Oh yeah. And that, I think, in a, in a big way, uh, got everybody on board that, hey, this company is very committed to helping children and getting our input. Yeah. Well, I, th I think that, like, looking at it again, 13 years into practice, I feel as though there's a bit, a bit of a paradigm shift, and maybe that's a, in a large part to do with it, that now the emphasis, at least portrayed by basically any company, is education, and they're all in on education. And, and again, I wasn't around in the early 2000s, so maybe they were saying it then, but I feel as though that is different than when I was a resident, where sort of the, the, the economic sales component was maybe a little bit of a bigger thing, and I feel as though that is, you know, a lot of the work that you did has, has made it so, at least in this organization, education, teaching, research is really uh, such an emphasis, and that partnership with industry is, is truly collaborative in, in those areas, not just in sales and patient care. Yeah. So. That's a perfect segue, because that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about, how you navigated that relationship between orthopediatrics and POSNA during this transition from everyone seeing industry as a dark side to people now seeing this industry partner. I think by my saying that this is a company with integrity, my colleagues in POSNA believed me. And so I would, you know, I was very involved in determining and helping to determine what the contributions would be and so on and where it would be most effective in not only POSNA but EPOS, BISCOS, and, you know, around, around, the, uh, around the world. And because I, I knew the people, because I, I was one of you, as opposed to, well, your, your industry, you know. But no, I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, and I was one of you. And I think that facilitated the interaction between PASA and, uh, and orthopediatrics. I have one quick question, which I've always wondered. What was the most miles that you logged in a year flying? Because we talked about some, some long trips you had. Well, so I, I have uh, over three and a half million miles on Delta. And I tell you, one, one of the sad things about retirement, you can't maintain your status. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm no longer a diamond on Delta. I'm platinum and going down. But I can't go below gold because of the three million miles I get gold for life. <laughs> That's, I guess, one benefit of, of traveling all those miles. That's great. So, Steve, uh, again, uh, another ca Canadian background. I have to correct oh. here. Yes, Canadian, and uh, probably so, and passionately so. Yeah. However, orthopedic children began in the U.S. In, in Chicago, right? In Chicago, Cook County. Um, UBC, at that stage of this game, isn't anymore. It was a, an ivory school medical school. And when I graduated from UBC, I had delivered eight children, started nine IVs, and two ECGs. <laughs> but we were fairly well educated. So we wanted to find a hospital 
that had lots of work to do. Because we figured, okay, we learned a fair amount, and not a lot of work to do. Catch up. And so we went down there. My first rotation was orthopedics. Uh, I had done a couple of extra rotations of orthopedics in Vancouver. And the, uh, the then senior resident took a, a shine to me and gave me all sorts of stuff to do, which was great. So my first couple of rotations at Cook County, I looked pretty good. So that did two things. It supported my academic future because I figured, okay, Boston, yeah, it's a nice university, but the people are producing are no smarter and no stupider than me. And the uh, major universities in Chicago. So, okay, I'm not from way over in the corner of the, of the, uh, the continent. And then my orientation was the uh, Northwestern University teaching faculty there. And he was an interesting chap. I didn't, I didn't know he was famous until years later. But the pediatric resident uh, at that time quit because Myron was sometimes difficult to work with. So they're one resident short. And so the uh, administrator came and he said, now I know you're doing a, a, a rotating internship. And I know that the next three months are going to be general surgery. So, but we have this problem. How would you like to do three months of pediatric orthopedic residency instead of your three months of general surgery. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I came back to Vancouver, I had a bias. Yeah. And I'd already fallen in love with pediatrics. And the sur only surgical discipline there that really appealed to me was pediatric orthopedics. And Vancouver was going to give it to me. Well, we eventually did that's well, but that's it's another interesting. story. Yeah, but, but that story, because this is so different, you know, uh, I think of my wife, who has been through so much just with me being in Nashville, Dallas, and Atlanta, but you were in, at, well, in, in uh, Chicago, at UBC, and then you did a anterior spine surgery fellowship in Hong Kong. That's right. You went to Delaware, yeah. and you went to Boston. Yeah. That's amazing. That's a and, lot, I mean, it's a lot of Oh, and, and, and at a time when that wasn't quite as easy to sort of navigate, I'm assuming. I mean, you can't pull up your phone and say, I'm going to fly to Hong Kong for three months. I mean, that, that's it's a much bigger ordeal. Can you talk a little bit about the mindset? And, and I, it's probably more of a generational thing, but that idea of really going and experiencing training in, in different areas of the world. That, that had a, 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 an influence on my later life as well. Because uh, my prof there, uh, Frank Patterson, who was uh, a garrulous... Interesting man, interesting man, strict, strong, uh, biased, heavily so, but hugely honest. Everybody, everybody, you know, if Frank said it, that was so. So, so anyhow, he looked ahead and saw that uh, A, uh, spine surgery was going to grow. So he says, you know, we're going to need to get more technique in spine surgery. Casts and rods, they're not going to do everything. And he said, I think uh, when you're finished and you come back, you're going to do the spine surgery. I said, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. So he, he said, I'm sending out to see Hottie because they're developing all the anterior spine surgical procedures because of the TV that was there. We need to learn those surgical techniques. We don't know in orthopedics yet. So you're going to go out there and you're going to scrub on all the uh, the TB, anterior TB cases, and you're going to learn the surgical techniques so that when spine surgery matures enough, we'll have someone to do that. 
was great. And Frank Patterson retired. And the new prof, who was one of my teaching mentors as, as, as a resident, who was really, really great guy. I got this letter from your Steve. Uh, as you may have heard, I've just become professor and head of department. It's now gone over our plans for the future. And I think it's a little premature for us to start a sponsor. service. So, uh, you know, the, the plan that for you to come back and be the sponsor, that isn't going to happen. Uh -huh. Okay, I'm <laughs> Okay, and uh, I'll be <laughs> So he says, but uh, Bill Thompson, who was doing the Harrington Rods there, he and John Hall were the first two to do Harrington Rods on the board, and he just had open heart surgery. And he said, so we really need someone to do the children's spine surgery. And Mike Bell, who just come back from Boston, I've not met Mike yet. He's over his head with stuff to do because the trauma was getting, getting to him and he was good. And yeah, a lot of stuff to do. They, I was the only children's orthopedic surgeon in the province. Wow. And he said, so would you consider coming back and doing the children's spine surgery and filling in for Mike so that you, you could do the needed extra work in pediatric orthopedics? Well, if you think back to Cook County Hospital, and you think, oh, that's a hell yeah. <laughs> so, where we go. And it influenced Patterson's approach. said, look, get the student into an environment with some people who are smart and know what they're doing, because we're not all here. We're not all that smart. The other is, follow what you really love to do, even if they tell you you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so, like all of the Hall of Fame inductees this year, you've been involved with POSNA in lots of different positions throughout the years. What, what stands out to you as sort of the most meaningful or maybe one well, you're most well, proud of throughout all of these, those? Uh, stories. My resident more than I love stories. <laughs> when uh, I started in practice, uh, I was a bit of an academic one as well. First paper was on the carbohydrate metabolism of teleos fishes. Anyhow, it just didn't seem right with the way we were doing things at the time, and academia really needed to, to come into that. So, so for Pazda, I've talked to one of my mentors that I've done fellowship with, who is a member of the Pediatric Orthopedic Society, and said, you know, you go to meetings every year. You know, Bob Hensinger was a year ahead of me. And I were talking, and where do we go? How do we get to that meeting? How do we get to go there and, and listen to the papers and perhaps even give them some? Because I think that's a really good way to grow, grow up knowledge. Yeah. And the response was, well, no, it's an invitation only. You remember that? Yeah. Club. And uh, only one person per center. center. Wow. And it wasn't my idea at all. I just was upset at it. <laughs> I can get upset. Uh, and it was, Bob had had the, I think, biggest influence on starting the study group. But from the upsetness, dissension, and brains of some people like Hansinger, it became obvious we wanted to do stuff. And the idea grew that we should have a group. Well, we weren't going to call it pediatric society because we couldn't do that. And so we called it the Pediatric Orthopedic Study Group. And that's where the concept of 
If you haven't got it down in five minutes, you don't know it came from. And the, the, the discussion was more important than the paper. And it was fun. And you remember, those, those are great meetings. And now, if you know anything about organizations, uh, organization walk as well, you'll know that if you have a senior and a junior group, one of two things will happen. The junior group will die, or the junior group is going to become very popular, and new juniors are going to want to join that group rather than the old fogey group. And so, so there's some bright guys in the pediatric, or the pediatric society, and they can see this coming. I think those were probably the ones that were upset by the policism. And so they got a hold of us, and we had a, a group together. We had a meeting together, the same, you know, a, a joint meeting in Vancouver, which brought in the other con concept of maybe a national meeting if the group isn't as what we were really looking for. How we many joined. people were at that first meeting? One of those was 12 and one was 20, and I've forgotten which. Oh, you mean the one in Vancouver? Yeah. Oh, oh that was 70-someone. Uh, yeah, 75, four, Yeah, yeah. Most of, most of them were the study group. Yeah. 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 So I think 78, there was a meeting in Virginia. Yeah, like, that was the next, yeah. the next, next year. year. That was the next year. So there was like 35 people there. Yeah. So that was yeah. awesome. So we had, what, 910 this year? Yeah. Well, yeah, I came in through the door. As you know, I've had a few personal problems, so I, I have been out of the, the loop for a while. So I came in the door this year. Oh my goodness, it's the Academy. <laughs> yes, I thought the same thing. Exactly, I thought the same thing with the different rooms. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, Freeman, I had a question for you, and, and feel, others feel free to chime in as well. Um, you know, it's it's so amazing, and that story, Steve, is great because you sort of see where it's come. And I'm curious, at your stage, if you look forward, are there things that you really wish, you know, 10, 15 years from now, POSNA will have done, will have morphed into? Like, what sort of, what, what would be your vision for the future, having, having seen the past uh, and where we've come from? Well, I, I think it's clear that they need to meet the needs of young people coming in. And the growth, I think, shows that. I think that the challenge for POSNA going forward will be the challenge, you know, like the academy has become so large to the point where it's immaterial for me. There's nothing much of interest. And that I think the challenge for POSNA going forward will be to keep enough general focus and ability to tie together the subspecialties so that they don't sort of all become, they go off on their own and they lose interest in the general meeting. So that's, figuring out how to do that, I think will be the biggest challenge from my perspective. And there's one, you know, the threat on the horizon is fine right now. Yeah, uh, which was my passion. Also, it needs to have a little talk in the back room about, without involving everybody, is how do we protect spine from becoming all, all alone? Because if it gets all alone, then you're going to develop another in-group. And in-groups are always loyal to themselves. Mm -hmm. So as long as the pediatric spine surgeons look upon themselves as pediatric orthopedists are okay. But once they start looking at themselves as spine surgeons, we're at risk. And it's the small group 
it usually suffers, and that would be fine. Yeah, and I think the same is true, though, for sports medicine, yeah. for neuroorthopedics, yeah. uh, neuropediatric orthopedics. They have that same risk. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I think we would all agree upon is, I mean, we can talk about the education and uh, the academic side of POSNA, but we're, we're truly blessed with having phenomenal fellowship. You know, and it's not just POSNA. I mean, anywhere in the world you go where pediatric orthopedic surgeons gather, there's phenomenal fellowship. You go down to Latin America, there's a different flavor down there, obviously. But, but there's this incredible fellowship. And I would think that one of the things that, that I would hope that we would never lose would be that fellowship. We provide the opportunity to teach each other and so on, but at the core, we have this fellowship that we recognize is equally as important as the academic side of it. I think there are two things that, that hold things together. So I, both of what you said were true. I was concerned at the trajectory in the rapid increase in numbers. And then yesterday, the workforce thing said we're there. And that is such good news because what we saw for the last couple of decades, I don't know how many were in when I got into Paza, but it was a small percentage of how many people there are now. And we kept going that way, it would have to break up. It would, it would just explode. But if we really have reached about max now, that's the good news. The other good news is that we've become global. And I've traveled around the world so many times. Um, and what I see out there is there's no country that's even close to subspecialization like we are. The pediatric orthopedic surgeons that there are there, they still have to do a lot of other things. And there's still the way I think the US, Canada, the POSNA was uh, 10 years ago. So that's what's going to help bind us together more. So the fact that we probably are reaching about max, great. The academy is keep exploding. And, and that our international contacts and our sense of how pediatric orthopedic surgeons are different. I have 10 orthopedic surgeons. You talk to them for five minutes, you know who the pediatric orthopedic surgeons are. Five doesn't take five minutes. There's a science. All these sciences that we're not aware of, but the ones of organizations and why they work, there's lots of work being done there that we haven't really read. And maybe we should to learn about the you know the dangers of in-group outgroup and, and how we stay relevant. Yeah. 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 yeah, so I'm glad you brought up the fellowship concept because that's what I wanted to kind of end this discussion on is uh, you can very clearly see the closeness and the bonds between the five of you. And I would love to include Andy as well as Chucky, you call Chick. him? Chick. 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 Morris Duhame. Uh, so if you could share some memories, stories of each other and how they've kind of evolved over the past few years. Not everyone has to go, but if anyone has some memories that they want to share, it would be wonderful. Well, to show you, or share one about Steve, when I was a medical student at Western University, Steve did part of his training a, a year in London, Ontario. And the fellow that convinced me to go into orthopedics was a guy named Peter Fowler, who unfortunately passed away uh, recently, a sports medicine guy, fabulous uh, teacher. And I met Steve there. Uh, we've remained friends for close to 50 years now. But 
the bonds, I think, uh, in our era, and I'm sure in your era as well, are very, very strong on people you meet along the way. And uh, Peter's another one. Peter was a year behind me in medical school at Western. We've remained friends for over 50 years, I hate to tell you. Yeah. I mean, that is just crazy. That's incredible. Like, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, the expansion. Uh, Salil and I think are, you're a year or yeah, two behind year, me. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just amazing yeah. that in this group, there were so many overlaps. That, and, you know, this is the Hall of Fame inductee group. Yeah, it's a small group. But what year did you finish in Kids? Yeah, 70. I mean, 80. Was it so one? 82? Yeah, and I finished at 85. And he just knew it well because we both worked with. With, with Colin. With Colin. And we became sort of the Colin Club. <laughs> yeah, he was like, just came there. So. Yeah. And I was there right before he left. <laughs> oh, you were there right before he left. Ah. Yeah, I was his last Toronto fellow. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Colin like, spoken about that. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I drove him yeah. away. <laughs> I drove away. And I knew you because we're from the Northwest. Oh, yeah. And I knew That's you. That's the fun. Like from Colin and, uh, and then you were my brother from another mother. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the one thing that I remember, when Salter used to quote Louis Pasteur, and he said, when I look upon a child, I'm filled with admiration, not so much for what the child is today, but for what it may become. And I, I thought that defines why we do what we do. We're all about for what the child may become, and helping in that process for what the child may become. You're right on. And my fellow orthopedic residents couldn't understand my stories from Cook County, how I'd make rounds with the kids on my shoulders and stuff, because that's what you do <laughs> when you're looking after kids. Uh, what the hell do you know? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, for spending this time with us. It's been wonderful to get to know all of your stories, and we're honored to have all of you as part of the Hall of Fame. Thank you. Yes, thank, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Thank you. We were told it was going to finish at 10 tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Say hello to Bill on the